Hi, this is Jill Bronfman. I'm Privacy Counsel at Common Sense Media. Today, we're going to talk about the State of Kids Privacy Report on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today is episode 253 for January 3rd, 2022. We have entered a brand new year. And man, let's hope it's better than last year uh, and the last two, to be honest. Man, the the Omicron variant of the COVID virus is just going nuts. I saw a, a graph, and I'll include it in the show notes of this article about Boston wastewater sampling. And so they figured out, and this is brilliant, that they can monitor for the presence of COVID in a city's wastewater, and that will give them kind of a heads up of what's coming because it shows up there before, you know, people get sick and go to the hospital. And it is truly, truly horrifying, the spike that has occurred in just the last week. I mean, it's, it's, it's off the charts. I mean, literally, so <laughs> you've got to see it to believe it, but it's really depressing. And I think we're in for a rough January, to be perfectly honest, especially these next couple of weeks. So hang in there, folks. And man, if you haven't, if you haven't gotten your shots yet, and or your boosters, please, please, please get them. Personally, anyway, for 2022, I've got some fun things planned. I hope to do some travel, but man, we got to wait and see how this stupid pandemic pans out to see if that's really going to be feasible. Uh, but for sure, I'm hoping to go to DEFCON 30 in August. And man, I hope that, I hope it happens. I mean, we thought this was all going to be done by now. So I just hope there's not some other crazy variant that's even worse that spikes over the summer. So anyway, uh, enough about that. But let's just hope 2020 is better. I hope you had a good uh, good New Year's Eve last night and celebrated with some close family and friends. So last Wednesday, I had my first soon-to-be annual patron holiday party. That was a lot of fun. Uh, some of my patrons joined me on a Zoom call, and we just sat around for a couple hours drinking some alcohol and talking about whatever. So that was a lot of fun. One of my patrons actually suggested we do that, and I'm glad that they did. And uh, I'll definitely make that an annual tradition. That was a lot of fun. So today we have a wonderful interview with Jill Bronfman from uh, Common Sense Media. And if you've never heard of Common Sense Media, then you probably aren't a parent uh, because uh, they have a website that I have used for many, many years that helps you as a parent or an educator determine what may or may not be appropriate for certain levels of children um, in terms of you know video games and movies and TV shows and products and services. Uh, it's really a wonderful, wonderful resource. And as my two girls were growing up, I refer to it many, many times when I was trying to decide, you know, whether or not this movie we want to watch is is appropriate. And honestly, there were, and I talk about a little bit about this in the interview, my memory is fuzzy. <laughs> and I, you know, what I watched certain things when I was younger, uh, it maybe, or maybe even as just a younger adult, you know, it's like, oh, that'd be fun to watch with the kids. And, uh, but I'd forget, oh, well, yeah, there was that one scene where there was nudity or yeah, there was a lot of cussing in that or whatever. Uh, <laughs> there, there are things that, you know, I'd forgotten about that common sense meat is really good about kind of, you know, telling you, okay, well, here's the deal. Here's how much sex is in there. Here's how much drugs is in there. Here's how much swearing is in there. Here's how much, you know, product placement, uh, you know, advertising might be in there. Uh, it's a great, you know, way to kind of refresh your memory of things you've watched, uh, but there, it turns out they do a whole lot more than that. And so I ran across this kid's privacy report and they just released a big report uh, that covers the last couple of years that is not just for parents and not just about 
kids necessarily. It also applies to a lot of adults. They really expanded it this year. Uh, in fact, let me you know. Let me just read real quick from the executive summary. This isn't even the whole executive summary, but this this will give you an idea uh, about this report that came out and what we're going to discuss today. It says the 2021 State of Kids Privacy Report represents the culmination of our research over the past five years in evaluating hundreds of education and consumer technology-related applications and services. Our evaluations include a careful reading and an in-depth analysis of all the publicly available privacy policies and terms of use by trained privacy attorneys and privacy experts in order to rate and score products with the highest possible quality and accuracy on a 100-point scale across 155 unique evaluation questions. This report includes our findings from evaluations of 200 products' privacy policies in 2020 and 2021 from the most popular kids' tech and ed tech applications and services, as determined from interviews with various parents, teachers, schools, and districts, as well as total Apple and Google App Store downloads during the past 12 months in the kids' and education categories. While we started evaluating apps in 2018 that might be used primarily by children under 13 years old and students in pre-K through 12th grade, our privacy evaluation process has since expanded to also examine the privacy practices of products for teens and adult consumers. In addition, products added since 2020 included more child-intended products rather than only student-intended products in order to create a more diverse and representative sample of the real-world environment in which children use tech products both at home and in the classroom. So anyway, that's what we're going to talk about today and kind of the implications of that and why maybe thinking about privacy for minors is different than for adults. So even if you don't have kids, a lot of the things we're going to talk today apply to you and some of these services, I'm sure, are things you might use as well. But if you are a parent or an educator or a policymaker or maybe work at one of the companies that provides these services or products, this is really important stuff. And I'm so glad to have had a chance to talk about this. So Real quick, before we get in there, we do throw around some some acronyms. Uh, most of these are privacy regulations uh, that I've talked about before, but just real quick to refresh your memory. COPPA, or C-O-P-P-A, is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. FERPA, which is funny to say, F-E-R-P-A, is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. C-C-P-A is the California Consumer Privacy Act. And C-P-R-A is the California Privacy Rights Act. And GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation, which is in effect in the EU or European Union. So, okay, there's a quick glossary for you before we get into the interview. And now let's hear from Jill Bruffman on the state of kids' privacy. Jill Bronfman is the Privacy Council at Common Sense Media, and she also teaches media ethics and privacy law. Welcome to the show, Jill. Welcome. Uh, I am feeling very welcome. It's a beautiful day in San Francisco. It's a little foggy. Um, I'm looking out my window at what should be the Golden Gate Bridge, but I can't actually see it at the moment. Maybe by the end of the podcast, I'll have a good view. That's pretty common out there, right? Isn't that kind of the morning fog roll in thing? Isn't that a thing in San Francisco? Yeah. um, You know, supposedly we haven't had much rain, but we're getting a a little bit now. So that's great. (laughs) All right. Well, I've used you guys for many, many years. Uh, when my daughters were younger, you guys were the go-to resource when I wanted to figure out, you know, should we watch this together? And, and invariably, what I found out is I used it a lot for movies and things because I'd watched a movie when I was younger. And, I, and I, the way I remember it was not the way it was. Like, I'd, I'd kind of – my memory glossed over things. So it was really good to go, you know, oh, yeah, that's right. There was that one part of that movie that I forgot about. Maybe I don't want to watch that with them yet kind of thing. <laughs> so I've used you guys for many years. So it's really great that we got uh, got together for this. 
So you guys just released this really amazing, uh, comprehensive and thorough report called the 2021 State of Kids Privacy Report. And we talk about privacy on the show a lot, but we really don't focus uh, on kids' privacy specifically, which is why this is so great. I think it's a wonderful opportunity because it's different for kids than it is for adults. So uh, really looking forward to digging into this uh, with you. So, But for starters, uh, for those of us out there that don't know, uh, tell us a little bit more about Common Sense Media, you know, maybe a little bit of its history, what kind of how it started and you know, what sort of work it's done since its inception. Sure. The organization was founded back in 2003 by Jim Steyer and some uh, compatriots. And they really started with a focus on children and protecting children and working in the media space and eventually in privacy. Uh, they were on my radar also as a parent when I was a parent of young kids. And they used to have this thing called a media use contract where we'd sign, you'd have your little elementary school kids sign up about how many hours a day or you know 30 minutes a day that they would use um, electronics. Oh. It all seems kind of quaint now, like mm -hmm. to look back and think about that because all of uh, those activities, the use of the iPad, the use of the computer um, has permeated our lives in so many ways. Um, right. And I'll talk a little bit more later about how our work intersects with the pandemic and, mm. and how uh, it, technology has changed since 2003. But at the onset, I engaged like you did with Common Sense Media as a parent and had my kids sign this media use contract and looked at the reviews. And then I started working there back in June 2018, mm -hmm. so not that long ago. Mm -hmm. I had come over from, they had hired me over from the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, where I was running the privacy and technology project. And mm -hmm. I had taught some classes in privacy law, and I had created a new class in privacy compliance, where I dragged in some, you know, we were right on Market Street in San Francisco. So I was able mm -hmm. to drag some people who could walk over from Twitter and LinkedIn and Google and Facebook. And I had these great guest speakers. It was kind of a, an inside joke when I went to speak at law professor conferences and describe this great new class that I had created. And they were like, Jill, no one's going to be able to duplicate that outside of San Francisco. That's like impossible. Right. But it was a great class. And so I, I was working on that. And then they hired me over to come and media. And I was pretty surprised when I got there. So imagine I'm like you, I had thought of it from a parent's perspective. And then I realized it's a pretty large organization. There are like 150 people there with multiple offices. You know, we're based in San Francisco, but we just opened a London office uh, mm. shortly before the pandemic, like back in 2019. Um, and there are offices around the US. And there's a lot of departments, like there's the media reviews that we talked about, where they're reviewing TV and films and games and books. But there's also an advocacy group, you know, that they call the, there's a whole area of the um, office they call the West Wing, um, <laughs> that engages with federal and state legislators. There's like a video room with where they're in a, um, a special compartment and they're making these incredible videos. Uh, there's a hu huge row of engineers creating software, which I'll talk about in a minute also, how we create uh, in-house software for our privacy uses. And then there's a huge education team. So Common Sense ed Education creates this curriculum for schools and gives it out to K through 12 schools all over the country. And that's one of the biggest organizations. And then hmm. just as I was starting with the organization back in 
June of 2018, the advocacy group had worked on the CCPA legislation, so the California mm-hmm. Privacy Legislation. And I uh, was listening, gosh, it was like, it felt like the first week I was there, like in June of 2018, I was listening to the votes on that bill. And mm-hmm. it was pretty exciting, you know, when it was passed and everyone was cheering because several people in the organization had had worked on drafting that and helping that get passed. So there's a lot to the organization, long answer to your question. When I take interns on a tour of of the organization, they're surprised as well because they usually have some stereotype of, of you know, what what common sense media did to them when they were teens and they couldn't get to watch, you know, a movie. That's usually how they come in, what they think of common sense media. Very cool. Wow, that, that that is very extensive. You just released this kids' privacy report, and it's it's quite long, and I didn't get to read it all, but uh, I skimmed a lot of it and read uh, portions of it, and it was just astoundingly comprehensive, actually, and, and very well researched. So, when and why did you start publishing this report? Uh, what were its goals, and who is the intended audience? Uh, and then, you know, tell us kind of about some of the research that goes into creating that report. Yeah. So again, in June 2018, I I was dropped into this project. It was still pretty early on. There were some questions drafted to create a rubric to evaluate companies, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. And I started revising those with an intern and those were eventually became our full evaluations. So what we're doing is we're doing these privacy evaluations year round. We take a snapshot of these 200 full evaluations with these 150 questions that we ask about each of these, about the privacy practices of each company. And for the report, we see what's happening year over year. Mm. So we did a report in 2018 and 2019, we skipped 2020 for all the obvious Mm. reasons. And then we did a 2021 report. And the goal is to gather the data about privacy policies in terms of use all in one place so people can compare them. And people is a lot of different people. So <laughs> the audience for the big report, as you mentioned, it's, it's quite long, like 180 pages. Um, so it's not, you know, it, fun reading unless, you know, you're looking for sleep-inducing reading. Um, it's a research report, yeah. not a novel. So what I tell people is that the audience is different depending on what you need from it. So people who look at the whole report are researchers and policy analysts and developers who are looking at the industry as a whole and wondering where their app or product fits into the industry and academics. But then there's also the general public, you know, what can the general public get out of this report? Uh, What can parents and educators get out of the report? They can look at the summary um, you know, there's like a two page executive summary that can look at the table of contents and and look up what product or um, issue they're concerned about. And then the real hardcore uses are um, it can be used as a procurement resource for school districts. So mm. school districts are trying to figure out what software to buy and how to use it. And this is super useful for them. We spend a lot of time um, meeting with a school district consortium of hundreds of schools and districts every month and finding out what they want, what they need. And that's how that helps us pick these two, these top 200 to do the report. We also have, you know, a thousand plus other evaluations of smaller and less used companies that we do more basic evaluations of 
And then also, this is just, you know, finally, it's just a really good piece of evidence for legislators and regulators. You know, we give them this honking report and they can say, hey, you know, wave it around. They can lift it. They wave it around and they go, hey, you know, we need some privacy legislation around here. Look at look at all the concerns that these this nonprofit common sense media has raised about these products. There's there are definitely some concerns. You know, again, we, we talk about privacy a lot on this show. Or I do it usually with relation to adults, um, but it's very different for kids. So maybe help us understand, you know, how would you compare the privacy concerns of young children and teenagers versus adults? How do the risks and issues differ for kids? Well, let me start by answering that question by saying how they're the same. Mm-hmm. So we always use the expression, you know, 13 going on 30. And we would like privacy to apply to all users. Mm -hmm. And our evaluation process really doesn't just look, it looks at kids' issues and it talks about parental consent and some of the requirements of COPPA and CCPA. But it really also considers parents' privacy and teachers' privacy because it's not just children interacting with software. There are also adults involved in the process. And we would like privacy to apply to all the users. Mm. So it's it's difficult logistically as well as unfair to just protect kids and not their parents and teachers. So mm. that's our starting point. And we do have a risks and harms report that we put out that shows it's not just kids who are affected by data breaches or mm-hmm. data sales with third parties. That being said, kids are more vulnerable. It's true. It's not an imaginary thing. The line where you say, you know, you turn 13 and you're miraculously an adult. Obviously, that line is drawn differently in Europe and other places. It's not a biological or even psychologically based dividing line. But kids are still generally kids, generally kids who are younger are more vulnerable when it comes to understanding things like advertising and in-app purchases. There's the famous $89.99 cart of Smurf Berries case, you know. (laughs) Kids don't know how much money that is. They just know that they need a cart of of coins or Smurf Berries or whatever it is in the the app and and they buy it, they click on it, they have no idea. So um, yeah, you know, there there are numerous examples of how kids are more vulnerable and and we do still need to keep an eye on that. Um, Even if we have miraculously a national privacy bill, um, I still think that there should be some individual considerations, particularly with regard to the example of like in-app purchases or advertising where kids are not discerning the difference really well between what's paid content, unpaid content, and what's safe for kids and what isn't safe for kids. And there still needs to be some parental consent for some apps and some uses of some apps. And there still needs to be some special protection for kids with regard to privacy. Well, you know, so obviously the, the, you know, the reason that we like to protect our kids more than uh, differently than adults is because they don't have the life experience, right? So they, like, as you're kind of alluding to, they don't have the context and the, and the, and the history and, and other experiences that, you know, the mistakes that feed into learning how these things work that adults have. But it's even more complicated that with when you start talking about digital stuff, because even adults don't have the, the context for it that, that they do in the physical world, because, you know, as a species, we haven't, you know, evolved and learned about dangers of things that are virtual because they're not 
kind of real. They don't, you know, if a 2000 pound car is speeding towards you, you know, that's a problem that you need to get out of the way, you know, but when you're giving away your data and they kind of filter off in the background, you never see that data get taken. You don't know where it goes. You don't have any kind of inherent defense mechanisms to understand and react to things like that. So it's, it's just compounded by all of that. And the, the lack of life experience and the lack of, you know, physical understanding and, and evolutionary responses to dangers. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, from a legal standpoint, you know, we have COPPA, we have FERPA, but U.S. privacy law is sectoral or piecemeal. Sometimes yeah. people talk about it as a patchwork quilt. We only look at privacy by age group or, you know, we don't set it up as a, it's a consumer protection issue. And when people think of consumer protection, they think of consumers. And it's a capitalist model that we're looking at companies in the US rather than individuals or human rights like they do in Europe. It's a different mindset to think about how we might protect people. So um, companies have to look at this international law and this US federal law and the state by state regulations to keep up plus the age-based regulations. There's sectoral um, laws like healthcare and financial and education. It's, it's a bit of an ordeal. And that's mm-hmm. why, you know, I mentioned a minute ago, it's not just the moral thing to do to keep everyone in the same privacy category and not just protect children or just healthcare information or just financial. It's actually logistically easier just to have privacy protection set up across the board and not have contracts that are one by one breaking off and branching off and and having different regulations for each thing it's it's a logistical nightmare to internally for a company and and i've experienced this working in, in private companies to keep up with all of the changes in privacy protection laws in various states and for different ages and different sectors, it's better to just establish kind of a baseline of privacy protection and then have that apply to everybody everywhere. So you, you, you rattled off a couple uh, acronyms that I'm familiar with, but the, the audience probably mm-hmm. isn't. So let's, let's dig into a couple of those real quick and explain why, you know, parents are constantly running into the, well, you know, enter the age of your child and why 13 is such a magic number, right? So that comes from probably, I think it was COPPA where it came from, but exp- mm-hmm. expand some of those for us. What are the, what are the kind of the prevailing laws that specifically apply to, to kids that, that parents have been running into and maybe not knowing why? Yeah, so COPPA, you know, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, it, it, it has some basis in reality. Like I said, it's not completely arbitrary. I like to think maybe uh, the division is more like middle school versus high school rather than 13 being a magic age. And, and if you've been a parent or known any children ever (laughs) you know that kids vary Mm -hmm. immensely i mean it's the greatest psychological experiment of all time to have more than one kid and find out in exactly the same parenting styles and exactly the same household that children will grow up very differently and have very different maturity levels and so certainly when you take away those standardizing factors kids vary quite a bit and so i think the idea of COPPA is that parents should be involved in what media their kids consume and where their kids can log into. And the idea is that the parent generally knows the kid best and knows whether they're mature enough to interact with different kinds of media. And again, it's somewhat of a convenient fiction that parents are able to even manage everything that's going on today. I mean, 
it, I am not the first person to say that the law lags significantly behind mm-hmm. the technology. I mean, mm-hmm. the law is, as I mentioned, sectoral. It's barely even covering like things like telecom. It's, you know, not even touching social media. Mm-hmm. And now we've got the metaverse. Um, it's a, you know, to use the cliche of Wild West, it is kind of the Wild West. Um, yeah making like a Westworld reference here, I think. And, you know, it's, it's largely unregulated. I mean, we have FTC, Federal Trade Commission regulations, Section 5 saying things like, you know, don't be unfair, or deceptive in advertising, but that's about it. I mean, there's no comprehensive regulation, even as you mentioned of some of the what we think of as practically, we, you know, we'll call it new media, but it's practically old media in the sense that it's a couple of decades old and never mind what's coming out in the future, you know, completely virtual worlds, as you mentioned, and, and that being completely unregulated at this point. Your kind of research breaks things down into certain categories and things. You've got concern categories, evaluation ratings, as I was looking through it kind of walk us through how you slice and dice things, like how you broke your report down, what types of products and services you covered, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we started with EdTech back in 2018. The report used to be called State of EdTech Privacy Report. But we realized that line got extremely blurred during the pandemic, if not before. I mean, the pandemic may have just um, a COVID-19 pandemic, in case anyone's listening to this (laughs) 10 years from now, which I'm sure they will be. You know, we expanded our view of what might be used in the classroom or what might be used at home with students. And we put in a lot more commercial products. We even did a streaming report recently. So mm-hmm. the products used at home and classroom are, are kind of what we're looking at now. And our rating system evolved into a pyramid of information, again, based on how much you need. So if you're just like taking a quick peek in, how good, how bad is it? We have a percentage number that you can look at, you know, did it get 78% or we have a tier warning, a tier, and you can look at that percentage score. And also you can also see if it got a pass, if it got a warning label or fail. So really simply those color coded icons, giving it a pass warning or fail. Fails are pretty rare. It usually means there's like no policy or no policy to speak of. Passes are also sort of unusual um, because a lot of companies sell kids data or do tracking. Mm. If any companies are out there listening and they want to know, how do I get a pass rating? Don't sell data. Don't use any third-party marketing communications. Don't display targeted advertising. No third-party tracking. Uh, no tracking across apps and no data profiling. So these are all the you know hardcore bad things that companies do um, with regard to violating kind of the basic assumptions that we might have about kids' apps and privacies. That being said, you know I'm sympathetic having worked at private companies. They need to monetize. They need to make money, and mm-hmm. you know chances are they're going to do one or more of these things to make money, especially if they're not charging for a subscription service. So when I teach undergraduate media students, we do talk a lot about economic models for apps. And, you know, I give them the the bad news about what (laughs) free apps might be doing and paid apps also might be selling new data. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, if you pay, you get some sort of um, immunity to having your data sold. I mean, research coming out of Berkeley and other places have shown that 
the paid apps are kind of selling new data also. Yep. So that's what we look at. Those are our concerns. Um, that's how we get things into these tiers and, and uh, rating. That being said, you know, the companies come to us with the sub stories of, of that they have to do this to make money. And we're like, great, just be transparent about it in your privacy policy. And uh, we give points for transparency. You know, it's not like that doesn't count. If they're honest about what they're doing, they may not get our highest rating, but they do get points for transparency. So companies or, or anyone who's interested can also go on our website. We have something called the standard privacy report. So again, we're building through the pyramids, you know, just the number, the tier, just the summary. We have a little prose, few paragraphs of, of summary describing our rating. And then they can go into the standard privacy report, which is like a magical checklist. Um, companies and developers love this. It's a checklist of how to get a better score. And that helps them. And then the bigger resources that we talked about, you can read the whole report and do a deep dive and figure out looking at all our charts and graphs and figuring out where you stand and where a company might stand in the industry and how to improve. And, and that is our goal, just to improve the industry as a whole. I mean, we, we love it when individual companies go, hey, uh, we want to improve our score. And then they do, you know, change their privacy policy or change their terms of use. And then they get a better score. That is great. But what we're trying to do is raise the bar for the industry as a whole. And we do that by, you know, increasing the standards for each individual company, but also setting a bar and, and encouraging all the companies to reach it. So you mentioned transparency. What about, uh, I'm just curious, what about uh, the ability to opt out of tracking? Is that something that you track? Is that something you promote? And does that, does that factor into somebody's overall score? If they not only expose the fact that they collect this, but if they give you a chance to opt out, does that make, is that even better? Does that get, does that increase their score? Absolutely. So we look for things like privacy settings. We look for, that is definitely a question. Um, we look for things uh, where people are given the opportunity to opt out globally or, or on a case-by-case basis, if they're able to opt out for their children or for their students. There are a lot of questions that address not just what do the privacy policies say about what the default is, but how much flexibility is the user offered? You know, can they can they have some agency? Can they, mm. pursuant to GDPR, the EU regulations, can they you know, download their uh, information or port their information to other companies? Can they see their data? Can they see what data goes out of the company and over to third parties? I mean, there's, it's something we encourage when we talk to the school districts, you know, don't only think about this once, you know, what are you going to buy? What are you going to use? But how are you going to use it? And how can you have a user experience that's improved over just accepting whatever the default is. So that's a good question. As you were doing this and you were going coming through the privacy policies, and I'm sure there were too many companies to have direct interactions with necessarily all of them, but I'm sure you, you know, you at least offered to do that. But I'm curious to know, you know, were these companies, as you were going through these privacy policies and, and writing up your reports, were they given an opportunity to see your findings ahead of your release and, you know, and, and have a chance to provide some feedback or maybe even make changes? Like, you know, did you realize your policy said this? Or if your policy said this, we could give you a higher rating. Um, so there's that. Like, you know, do they have a chance to improve their score before your report comes out? And then how how dynamic is your up, uh, are your findings? Are these things you're constantly updating online as you're getting, as companies maybe see their support now and go make changes? Or is it going to be another year before these companies get a chance to improve their score? 
this is also a great question because hardly anybody ever asks us this one. Um, <laughs> it's a super interactive process. And this is, you know, definitely within not just our company or our department's thing, but this is actually my job. Mm. So, you know, we do the reports and we publish them, but the companies very often give us feedback um, on the, their own evaluation and the process in general, and we make changes. Um, we have software, it's called the policy annotator. It does basically what the name of it suggests. It helps us annotate the policies. So we're not just saying yes, no, yes, no, yes, no to all these questions. We're actually pulling the text out of the company's own documents and highlighting it and documenting it um, as part of the answers to each of the questions, which is super great for us being able to then have these conversations with the companies afterwards and be able to say to them, uh, yeah, so you're tracking, you're doing this and, you know, you're selling data and here's the language and your policy. And they go, ooh, it's especially illuminating to have these conversations with companies because sometimes they don't know what's in their privacy policies. Sometimes they are not actually doing what they're saying in their privacy policies and they need to true that up. I'll, I'll talk about that later as well. But we do have software that scans for new policies. Mm. We are a sort of small nonprofit team, as I like to rem- remind people who are like, you need to put a new evaluation out immediately. But it is very useful for companies to ping us, email us or whatever, and tell us when they have a new policy that does bump them up in the queue above the regular checking that we do. So we put them in the queue for reevaluation when there has been significant changes to the policy. And our software actually does have a function to tell us, you know, percentage wise, how much a policy has changed. So Hmm. we could go in there and and it will let us know. Uh, There are many things that I, as a non-engineer, find magical about the system, but I will talk before we leave today and don't let me forget to talk about our AI and machine learning work that we're building in. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, it already seems magical to me. So um, when we're adding machine learning in, it's going to be even more, um, you know, mind reading. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've talking a lot about the privacy policies and their stated, you know, goals and what they say they're going to do. How how confident are you that the companies are actually following their own stated privacy policies? And more to the point, you know, how could we, you know, either as consumers or perhaps regulators or policymakers? Or you guys, how would you how would you know if they weren't following that? Like, how do you judge the fact that okay, this is what you say you're going to do? That's all well and good, but how do I know that you're actually doing what you say you're going to do? Sometimes they confess uh, and tell us, "Oh, we're not actually doing that for better or for worse." But I have to be honest with companies that ask me that question and say, "We are not doing internal audits. We are a small team of nonprofit workers looking at privacy policies in terms of use. We are not." doing penetration testing and privacy audits and looking at the network Mm -hmm. and seeing where data flows. That is a much bigger job. Mm -hmm. There are privacy technology companies and consultants that do that work. It's a good idea for them to also check and see if that works. It's a good practice for companies to, to look at our ratings and look at their practices and see if they match up. Many companies do that in the process of, of discovering our privacy evaluations, and as I mentioned, and finding out that that is the case. Then sometimes there is a very happy moment where they say, oh, we're going to want to actually do that terrible thing that um, our lawyers have written the privacy policy to cover because they were trying to cover all the options, but we don't actually do that. And I'm like, 
well, maybe you should have everyone look at the privacy policy and make sure those two things match up. That would be great. So several companies actually realize there is that discrepancy between the policy and the practice, as you mentioned, and then they kind of sheepishly update their policy. Um, and if it's better, they ask for reevaluation. I mean, sometimes they could update their policy to reflect worse practices, and then they're not so thrilled about the reevaluation. But they often do uh, update their policy to indicate that their practices are more privacy protective, and then we give them a better score, and then everyone's happy. <laughs> Well, and, and you know, you can say a lot about, you know, oh, it's just a policy, but I mean, the fact that they have it written down, the, the fact that they've made it public, I mean, that does give regulators and other, and other agencies and, and third-party groups the, the opportunity to hold them accountable as well. Um, so the fact that you actually have it do written down, that that, that is a, that the first step that allows all the other things to happen. And, and even though it's not your purview to, to hold them accountable directly if they don't follow it, there are groups that do, including government agencies. So just the fact that it's written down, you guys are documenting it, it, it is a big first step. So that's important. All right. So you guys have been doing this research since 2018, this report you've been putting out. So tell us a little bit about what, I mean, what kind of trends you've seen. How has the report itself actually evolved? Because I noticed that when in researching this, that your report itself has, has evolved in that time. Uh, but what, also, what kind of trends are you seeing in terms of privacy? Is like things getting worse? Things getting better? What, do you, what have you found since you started doing this? As far as the structure of the report, we're, we're adding more companies as we can, including more types of companies. You know, I mentioned streaming services and that sort of thing that wouldn't initially be on your radar as an educational technology sort of product, but it's becoming one. There are definitely more elements of transparency every year. People get on board and realize that transparency is either a good thing, either because companies become aware of the laws and the requirements or the public becomes more aware of the need for transparency as it's covered in the media and privacy and what I call like basic privacy, like identity theft and data breaches are covered in the news more prominently than some mm -hmm. of the data flow issues and data sales issues and, you know, combination and profiling and all those things that we are looking out for. But I think even those more subtle, uh, difficult to quantify and show pictures of in the media, even those issues are being covered more in the media. So the public's becoming more aware and we're, we're including that. I, in addition to my law degree, uh, did uh, do a graduate degree in media studies and I teach that. Mm. So I'm very aware, not just of how privacy is, is captured in the law, but also how it's captured in the media and, and what people are aware of. So the companies do respond to the media and user pressure for updating the evaluation score, as well as, you know, our evaluation scores, hopefully. Um, we're not the only people out there doing privacy evaluations, but we're by far the most comprehensive. You know, other people are doing things like keyword searches or mm. taking little dips in and looking at things, but no one is doing, you know, the kind of evaluations that we're doing. That being said, sometimes they are revealing worse practices, mm. uh, like more selling, more tracking. I would say that they are being more transparent. So that's good. They want to comply, but it's possible that they are also, even though, you know, they're becoming more transparent, uh, but they are also maybe discovering more ways to sell the data. And data brokers are becoming more sophisticated in their marketing oh, yeah. and ability to grab data sources that they weren't grabbing before and use it and process it in, in more interesting ways. So that has become more complicated. And maybe it's it's just really difficult to capture in a privacy policy, which has certain constraints about it can't be 150 pages long or no one will 
read it or even be <laughs> less likely to read it than they already are. I mean, that's obviously where we started this whole process, you know, the idea that people weren't reading privacy policies and we needed to do it for them um, and summarize it somewhere. And third parties, you know, when we talk about selling data to third parties, we have to remember that third parties aren't just one single third party. They're actually huge networks of oh, yeah. resellers for data sale and combination and profiling. And that is an industry that's growing and even less regulated than the right. you know, more underground than the social media. And by underground, I don't mean, you know, black market sort of thing. It's all on the up and up as far as it being legal, but it's, it's, it's not regulated and there's very little data protection, particularly in the U.S. So you mentioned a couple of uh, privacy laws, CCPA and uh, CCPRA and GDPR, and we'll, and I'll blow those out in the intro <laughs> and for, for the listeners in case they've forgotten. But a lot of these have gone into effect, like during the time that you've started these reports, like some of your report kind of predates some of these. So have you noticed that any of these laws have actually had a, a direct effect on some of your of your results in the in the survey? Like have things gotten better? And then I'm also curious to know, because this is something I kind of a point I make sometimes too, is that these are patchwork quilts. These are very regional kind of things. And yet a lot of companies don't like to do something different for one region versus another. So have we benefited of those of us, for instance, the C in CCPA is California, but for those of us outside of California, have we also benefited from some of these regulations that are, that, have, that are very regional, but yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, two quite, I have two answers to that. One, I've worked on international contracts. And as I've mentioned, um, from an in-house lawyer's perspective, it's easier to pick a standard than and go with it. I've seen contracts for very large companies attempt to parse things out, you know, have an attachment and with a different paragraph for each company. And it's messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it requires constant updating. So I found it's easier to pick a standard and go with it for the entire contract rather than trying to administer different standards. So company might pick GDPR, um, not only for the European Union, the EU, but also elsewhere, or pick the CCPA standard for the whole United States. That could happen. You could even, because it's a private contract, you could even have a standard that doesn't legally apply. You can just grab Hmm. it and attach it to the contract. Not a lot of people think about how much impact laws might have, as you mentioned, outside of their technical jurisdictional area because contracts pick them up and spread them. Hmm, interesting. Just for the ease of utility. And then right. the other question, you know, how has this impacted our work specifically? Oh yeah, it they have definitely impacted our work. May of 2018, there was a huge and and thereafter huge effort on our part, massive reevaluations after GDPR put in all these standards um, at that time. And then CCPA, there was another, everybody let's revise our privacy policies. And we're like, oh great, we got to do everything again. We do have this secret behind the scenes process to do refreshes of the evaluations, which I um, often do, especially the really long full evaluation ones. We have another magical software system to uh, allow us to keep existing annotations. where the text hasn't changed in the privacy policy and then also get rid of the, the red line text and put in the new language. So it's not several days work as it would be to do a full re-evalu- full evaluation from scratch, but um, we do have to do a lot as each of these come into play and then CPRA will come into play um, soon as well and we'll do another round of 
re-evaluations or refreshing the existing evaluations as companies update their policy. But uh, so have the have these new regulations actually improved things? Like if you, as you look at the results, how good things are, how bad things are, have these regulations actually improved things? I would say that's a yes on the transparency, right? I think that companies do generally try to comply with the law. There, there were some snarky comments in the, you wouldn't think of a, a privacy policy, which is a totally a legal document. It's a contract. There's some snarky language out there in privacy policies about the cell provision and CCPA, which a lot of companies had problem with calling it, you know, vague or um, mm. not appropriate or whatever. So yeah, they, I did see the word sell in quotes. I'm doing right. air quotes right now. And, you know, that kind of language where they say, well, if I guess if we're selling, if you say so, sort of language. Yeah, it was, wow. it was the one time you really saw um, an effort to be compliant, but also, you know, not really happy about it. You saw that reflected in the language of the privacy policies, which was pretty entertaining. Well, to your point, I mean, and that is something that like even Facebook was uh, pushing back hard on the whole idea of selling. Like they, they made a big deal of, we never sell your data and it's because they're not, they're selling access to your data. Right? The, the data is like the gold, like that's the golden goose. Like they don't want to give that away. So they hoard all this data and then they, and then they sell access to it through their marketing program. So in that sense, they're not selling your data. Like they're not giving your data up, but they're, they're selling access to that data through marketers. So that's why they would, you know, again, this whole air quotes thing, I, I get you. They, yeah, selling is. <laughs> Selling is inclusive of renting and licensing and granting access to. It's a financial consideration where they, you know, they're they're trading um, any anything of value for access to the data. That that's what we're talking about, and that's where it gets sticky because you know people make fun of the definitions, but there's a genuine effort to capture exactly what you're talking about. The right. subtle and clever and remunerative ways that a company like Facebook or others in their situation would, would use data for financial gain. You mentioned the pandemic and it's something we are still dealing with. If you'd asked me a year ago, if we were going to be dealing with that again this year, I would have been like, no, we'll have the vaccine by then. Or it'll all be better, but no, uh, we, are, we are still dealing with that. So, but because of the pandemic, things have really have been shaken up in every aspect of our of our lives. And but in kids particular that are having to work from their uh, do school from home and take their exams from home and be proctored remotely. I'm curious from your perspective, doing these reports over several years, what have you seen? What kind of how has that pandemic impacted privacy for kids versus pre-pandemic? Yeah, two two answers again. Um, Common Sense Media put together this wide open school website beginning of the pandemic to try to consolidate all these online education resources, uh, which was great for the company and great for everybody who was out there trying to figure out what to do about online education, um, especially if they were doing it from scratch, like you would be if you were a kindergarten teacher. You know, uh, I've taught online classes before um, and used things, you know, online educational technology resources before as a college professor, a law professor. But, you know, if you're teaching elementary school, you're not that familiar with it. So we tried to put this wide open school website up and it has been up and will eventually uh, phase out as the pandemic phases out. But from the privacy department's point of view, we were like, oh, great. Here's a bunch of companies that hadn't even thought about educational technology or privacy somehow. And we've got to ramp up and interface with uh, ed tech. So 
we talked to companies like Zoom and other companies that were completely blindsided mm. by being used as educational technology. You know, Zoom people were probably like, wait, we're a yoga company now? <laughs> wait, we're teaching little kids? We, we, no, no, that's right. not what we were trying to do. So uh, companies either intentionally or unintentionally got swept up into educational technology. And we have done our best to evaluate those companies as well, bring them into the fold and, and get out a privacy evaluation for each of those. And then you mentioned also online proctoring. I have lots of thoughts about this, both as a parent and a teacher. It's a difficult choice. So for me, I teach adults or legally adults, sometimes like college students. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I generally even teach upperclassmen. So they're not even like 18 or 19 years old. They're usually 21 and up. So I trust them to use open book exams. Uh, if any of them are listening now, I hope they um, all did a great job on their exam this week, uh, final exam this week, and had the opportunity to organize themselves rather than opportunity to cheat. I mean, a, real life is an open book exam. Right. So uh, that works well for college students and graduate students. I think they're already mature enough to realize that as, as the saying goes, they're only cheating themselves if they cheat on, uh, you know, cheat their way through school and then have to do some of the very practical things that I'm trying, you know, I'm teaching students how to do presentations and how to use various management techniques in a company. So those are things that they'll actually need in the workforce. I can see how, you know, the temptation might be a little bit more significant if you've got younger kids and you're doing something like calculus or whatever. And, and, you know, I see the value of online proctoring, but I think there are several concerns with it. There are disability concerns. Mm -hmm. um, There are privacy concerns. There are various fairness concerns about whether it, it is actually simulating an exam experience or not. And just, you know, the privacy and data security concerns that I have are it's just another thing to throw on the top of kids' experience where we're just building a, um, a huge treasure trove of data about every kid and saving it for all eternity. You know, it, it, it's typical for people of my generation to say, phew, it's a good thing there wasn't any social media when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so we're, I feel bad for this generation of kids that and online proctoring is just another thing to throw in the pile. It's not a uniquely privacy invasive thing, although um, it is collecting possibly biometrics as well mm. as just uh, entering your name and uh, password. It is just, you know, it's another thing to add to the pile. It'll be interesting to see when, how that intersects with the metaverse stuff um, and the, when virtual schooling becomes more of the norm. I've, I've already had some meetings in the metaverse. You know, I think we'll look back on them and say that they're entertainingly basic and simplistic um, once we get to full virtual meetings and full virtual school. And then, you know, it, millions of data points will be gathered from all of the yeah. students involved in that process. Well, and for those of you out here out there, our parents, I'll be just throwing one anecdote because I, 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 I would not have known this had I not had daughters that went just just went through this. But the online proctoring thing is amazingly invasive. Like they have to get into a room at a certain time, they have to 
install a very particular browser, which takes over their computer. They can't have any other software running. It automatically turns on their microphone and camera. Before every exam, they have to get up with their laptop, walk around the room, do a 360, show that there's no one else in the room. There's no other materials in the room that they're that they're looking at, like books and things they can cheat off of. And then they have to take the test. Now, if they have to go to the bathroom, if their younger kid sister opens the door to the bedroom in the middle of the thing, that can throw things off. If they have to look off to the side for too long, it'll flag the fact they're not paying attention and then raise a red flag. They might be cheating. It's just I couldn't believe uh, all the the things they were that the these online proctoring things had to do. And it all comes back to like you were saying that they were trying to make it a closed book test that you couldn't cheat off. But if in real life, it's never like that. I mean, if my boss ever told me, okay, I want you to go off in that room, solve this problem in an hour, don't talk to anybody, don't look anything up on the internet, don't use any of your reference material, you do it strictly from memory and come back and have it right. That's not life. You know, I was really kind of hoping that, would, you know, this might change the way we do testing, but apparently not. Uh, okay, so... All right. So what are some of the key findings from your, from this latest report? Uh, where are things getting better? You know, maybe where are things actually getting worse? Uh, and if that's the case, why do you think that is? Yeah. So uh, the theme of transparency is coming back to us here. It continues to increase over the past four years. We've had significant increases in transparency on almost every single full evaluation question. Um, this enables parents and educators and consumers to make informed decisions about the products they use with children and students. However, the industry has still has a long way to go. So it's not perfect transparency. And even though uh, we see transparency as a really important value in our kind of commercially based society, like how can you make uh, a market decision without this transparency? Um, it's still not perfectly transparent. Our rating practices are more transparent. So companies are updating the privacy policy specifically, as I mentioned, to address issues in our ratings criteria. Mm -hmm. But many companies that change their privacy policy to address a rating criteria issue, whether it's a response to the new legislation, as we talked about, or pressure for consumers, which we also talked about, sometimes they disclose worse practices. <laughs> so transparency is good, but sometimes it doesn't always get them ultimately a higher score. And then this worst practice of selling data, which we talked about, is definitely increased over the last four years, which is putting more kids and families' privacy at risk. We're hoping that the new privacy laws, like California's Privacy Rights Act, that's the CPRA that we were talking about, that second, you know, Cal the California Privacy 2.0 right, um, right. legislation, that will expand what selling data means and it it, it is expected to drastically increase the percentage of the industry selling data of children and students for profit. So we'll see that. I'm starting to see that now. And then we'll see that more significantly going forward. Uh, overall, you know, we looked at the statistics and the apps used by children and students are using unhealthy or non-protective uh, privacy practices and putting the kids at risk. So two-thirds of the products used by kids have worse privacy practices mm. um, that track them on the app and use the internet for advertising purposes. Half of the products intended for kids have either unclear or worse practices. Unclear meaning like they don't say anything in the privacy policy at all and we, we have to give them a, a negative rating for that or allow uh, sending third-party marketing communications. And then almost half of the products have the potential to serve targeted ads to, to students based on their personal information. So we do distinguish between 
old school, what we call like banner ads, you know, just, hey, buy this, you know, mm-hmm. whoever you are. Right. <laughs> we call that traditional advertising versus what we call targeted advertising or behavioral advertising. So this is advertising that is based on something that a kid clicked on or something that a kid is looking at for some time Mm. um, or something that they interact with. Um, And the products, we looked at almost half the products will serve targeted ads, not just to adults, but also to students based on their personal information. So one of the things I noticed in looking at the trends is that you, you said you had the kind of the good, the bad, and the unclear. And and what I noticed the trends over the years was the unclear got smaller and smaller, but it didn't go to the good. It went to the bad. It went to the bad. Like as as they became more transparent and revealed more what they were doing, it was going into the wrong column. But it basically is the way I read that. Yeah, and really, all we can do is illuminate the dark corners of <laughs> privacy policies. Um, we can't change them. We can suggest that people change them. And sometimes they do, which is great. Going forward, you know, how do we as parents and students and educators, you know, how do we, how do we better evaluate and compare these products? I mean, if I, for the market to work, for example, if I, if I have the choice between option A and option B, if I don't know, if I can't compare them on based on privacy, then the market, the free hand of the market is the, you know, the, the market economists like to say, don't, doesn't really work. If I can't, if I don't have that kind of transparency. So, like Apple has tried this thing with they're calling, you know, nutrition labels, Uh, you know, like they've, they've kind of come up with a a standard stock way of describing privacy policies in a short, tight format that is easily comparable from A to B. How likely is it do you think that we could coalesce around something like that? You're, you're kind of trying to do that with your software is kind of working this together and try to summarize things in a, in a way, but you there, do you think as an, as a, as an industry or as a, as an economy, we can, we could ever get to the point where we can simplify these things to the point where we really can do simple apples, apples kind of comparisons across products. Oh, I like the apples to apples analogy. First of all, I, I, I need to be really clear that Apple nutrition label is not created by Apple, that the companies are self-reporting and mm-hmm. are they doing that accurately? Well, you can compare those to our privacy evaluations and see that maybe not so much, mm-hmm. you know? So self-reporting is not ideal, as you can imagine, the, the usual, all the usual problems with self-reporting and then summary, you know, simple reporting, not getting into the, the weeds like we do. So that it's not exactly the same thing, so, but you can't do the apples to apples comparison necessarily between the nutritional labels that Apple is putting out on, I, sh- I, I made the mistake, same mistake. Apple is not putting them out. Companies are reporting. Right. <laughs> Apple is just communicating the companies uh, self-reporting. They're pretty basic compared to our more elaborate evaluations, sure. but you can still put them next to each other and, and see um, how that that compares. And of course, you can take two of our privacy evaluations um, from two different companies and compare those and, and figure out what's a better deal I should mention also that Common Sense Media, outside of the privacy department, also does ratings for apps that children use. And they say, you know, how good is it on other factors? You know, mm. is it fun? Is it educational? Is it, uh, you know, all the usual things that their rubric looks at. So that is another thing to look at. We're trying to create the standard, but again, we're a small nonprofit. So we need a lot more resources <laughs> to do the mm. entire Apple App Store or Google Play Store. We're, you know, making inroads and we're certainly looking at the most used 
um, apps and products out there, which makes, even though we're not able to do everything, we're certainly getting a, a huge percentage of the market or what's actually used by children and students. So that is helpful at least. All right. So let, let's look forward now. Um, going Going from here, you know, where should we go from here? I mean, as you're doing these things, as you're gathering all this data and seeing these reports, you know, what is screaming to you is like, this is, this is the simple stuff. Like this is the stuff we should be doing next. Like this is low hanging fruit. You know, these are the obvious changes we should, we should be making, uh, in the industry that, that you would advise these companies. If they're coming to you like, okay, what should I tackle first? Well, these are, these are the simple things. Like what are the, what are those things? And then, you know, once we kind of look past that, what, what do you think would maybe the most important or the most impactful changes that we should be making? Does it require regulation? You know, if you had your way, if you could wave a magic wand, if you could, you know, if you were in the position of actually telling these companies uh, with these products what to do, what would you be advising them? A lot of people want national privacy legislation. And I've mentioned some of the advantages of that. A lot of different groups want national privacy legislation, but they want it um, on their own terms. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies would like very much to help draft that mm -hmm. <laughs> and have it be lower, you know, than uh, private companies might want it to be lower standards than California to, you know, overrule everything in California and have a national law that has a lower standard. So. National privacy legislation isn't a perfect solution, but it is one possible solution to some of the difficulties that we've discussed today. Personally, it'd be great to have a larger team at my nonprofit to do more privacy evaluations. And I promised you I would talk about artificial intelligence yes. and machine. I have spoken about this at a number of conferences uh, and particularly what we're doing with artificial intelligence and machine learning for our software. We're trying to not fully, we're not fully automating our privacy evaluations, but we're trying to move the process from reading and writing essays in an exam, to use the exam model that we were talking about a little while ago, to a multiple choice situation. So the way that would work, and, and I've seen uh, demos of this, and it's pretty exciting, um, the way it would work is that the machine learning is uh, figuring out from looking at the evaluations that we've already done, what sort of text in the privacy policy or the terms of use, or we look at also like cookie policies and some mm -hmm. other policies. Some companies we look at two policies, sometimes they have like eight or 10 or whatever, like the big companies do. But, you know, the machine learning will learn which types of text in the, in the policies answer the questions and then present again, to the human evaluator, so it's not completely automated, present to the human evaluator some possible options. And this, and, and with a percentage certainty thing, mm. which is really cool, telling you uh, how likely it is that it will work to answer the question. So this is kind of a backstage pass to what we're talking about now in uh, machine learning. And so far, so good. You know, it's, it's still in its early stages, but I think it would enable evaluators to do these evaluations quite a bit quicker than they are right now. They're very comprehensive, but very manual. You know, there's a software assist. We're not just reading and highlighting things with a pen, but <laughs> it still um, requires a, a team of hardworking evaluators to create the evaluations that we have, which are currently available on our website. 
for free, easy to use, easy to access. And again, our goal is to try to increase privacy protection, particularly for kids and students, but hopefully eventually for everyone. So if you were advising a company, like, so obviously the first thing is transparency. And, and so you've been pushing that a lot and make, and, and making some gains in that, which is great. Um, so short of not selling people's data at all, like what is the next thing that you would recommend that they do? Like, okay, we've got the privacy policy nailed down. We're being as transparent as we can. What is the next thing you would advise them to do that would bump their score up? Is it giving somebody an opt out? What, what is, what, like, what's the next step, low hanging fruit that would bump up, some, you know, company A's score on your report? I, I do like that you brought up the issue of customizability, um, of uh, being able to opt out, being able to access the information, um, to download it, to correct it, to back out at certain points. You know, we get we have we give points for things like allowing students or their proxies, you know, parents or teachers to only allow certain information to be shared or uh, to stop information sharing, but still use the product. There are a fair amount of uh, companies that go out there and say, yeah, you can stop data collection, but then you're also stopping, you know, use of the product, you're out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, allowing that customizable interaction with the product, I think, would be a step in the right direction beyond just transparency. As you mentioned, uh, allowing customized use of the product, particularly with regard to data flows, would be um, much more privacy protective. All right, Jill, one more question uh, before we go, before we let you go. Uh, what's what's next for you guys? What's coming up with uh, with Common Sense Media? What are, what are you maybe looking forward to doing in future reports? And then uh, as listeners, how can we help support your efforts? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked, what is our next report? Because there is always a next report, right? Um, in addition to these state of privacy reports, we do have most recently a streaming report, which is really useful to compare streaming products and their privacy. Our next big report is going to be VR. And as I mentioned, um, you know, to talk about virtual reality and maybe augmented reality, but uh, I think it's really important. I think that the, both because of, you know, it's not ubiquitous. It's not like, oh, I'm going to a meeting. I'm certain it's going to be in VR um, or I'm going to a class. I better get my my avatar ready for a class. Um, I, I don't think it's quite or quite at that level, but I think due to the fact that it's on the rise and that it collects um, billions of points of data about us, some of it expected, you know, uh, and voluntary that we share and some of it really not expected collection of data or involuntary collection of data or what we would call tracking where they're monitoring all sorts of biometric data as you're using the product that you're not even thinking of, things that you're not voluntarily clicking on or pulling up um, documents, but the the biometric information, the um, tracking of behavioral activities, what you click on, how fast you click on it, how long you look at things, that is the kind of tracking that we're concerned about. And what I would call... A, the envelope information, um, this is an old school term from telecom, but, you know, not just, okay, we're not listening to your call, but um, we do, we are recording when the call was made and who it was to. And, metadata, you know, yeah. the, the metadata um, is all being collected as well. And one of the things that I think was transformative in, in how much data is collected is the storage wars 
that happened already, you know, more than 10 years ago. It used to be that storage, I worked at a company where, where storage was something that was sold and, and valued. Um, storage is now really cheap. And mm-hmm. that makes an incentive to collect as much data as possible and save it for maybe, maybe use it later. You don't even know right. what you're collecting this data for right now. Who knows what they're going to do with this information? The companies don't even know what they're going to do with this information. They're collecting it, throwing it in the, the server and maybe using it for all sorts of wonderful, spectacular, life-saving vaccines and also, you know, weapons of mass destruction and also, you know, um, creating data profiles and selling them to the highest bidder. So there's, there's all sorts of incentives with data collection and, and privacy for virtual reality, which is why that's going to be our next report. We're not going to go um, as far into the future as I'm speculating right here, but if I write science fiction, and that's how I think, as I read too much science fiction, but we'll look at the basics of, of virtual reality and how much data we can see um, that they're saying that they're collecting. And, and maybe we won't be able to extrapolate as much as, as science fiction does, but we'll at least um, look at what they're doing now and, and kind of document the privacy protections and lack thereof and data collection and data flows that we're looking at right now. So obviously if people should, you know, share this with other, with other folks to, to spread the word about what the, all the work you guys are doing. Do you guys take direct donations? Do you guys have subscription services? How can we, how can we directly support your efforts? Yeah, so we encourage you to, to go to our website, use the resources on the website. There are subscription and, and membership type services for um, common sense media's uh, educational and ratings resources. And as far as the privacy report, it, the privacy reports are concerned, you know, please go to our website. They're all available for free and I encourage you to look at these resources, to use them and share them. All right, Jill, that was uh, fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, that was extremely informative. Thank you, Carrie. Big thanks again to Jill for coming on the show. We actually got that interview together really kind of at the last minute and during the holiday period. So, so big thanks again to Jill for coming on the show and telling us about this report. It really is cool. And again, it's it's long and it's very detailed. But uh, if you have any interest at all, just check out the executive summary and some of the key findings. That's pretty short. That's just a few pages. Uh, again, there's a link in the show notes. And also, if you're a parent or an educator at all, definitely uh, bookmark Common Sense Media. They're a great resource and share that around with your friends uh, as well. And of course, they are a nonprofit organization that does take donations. So if you really like what they do, maybe shoot those guys a little bit of money to say thank you. Now, if you have any interest at all in getting into privacy as a career, I captured a little bit of bonus content uh, about that when I talked to Jill about how she got into it and how someone else might get into that area if you are interested. So anyway, for my patrons, expect that bonus content to drop soon. And if you would like to hear it, then all you need to do is become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And of course, there is a link to that in the show notes, as always. So coming up next week will be a news show. And there's luckily, it's been a little quiet, knock on wood. But I've got some interesting news articles to talk to you about there. I'm also going to be doing my New Year's resolutions suggestions for 2022 as my tip of the week. Also next week, I'm going to be telling you about my annual listener survey, and this is really important to me. Uh, I want to make this show as interesting as possible and as informative as possible, so I really do like to get feedback from you guys. I do this just once a year, so if you have any ideas on how I can make this show better, 
Or if you just want to give me some feedback about things you like about the show and make sure I want to keep doing those things, uh, this is a great time to do it. And to give you some incentive to do those things, I am going to be running a little promotion, a little giveaway. So anyway, stay tuned next week for details on that. Now, the week after that, I may do another news show. It may be an interview show. It normally would be interview, of course, but with the holidays, scheduling interviews has been kind of tricky. So it might be another news show. Uh, and then the week after that is Data Privacy Week. That's January 24th through the 28th. That is an international thing. It used to be International Data Privacy Day, and they have expanded it to an entire week. So anyway, we're definitely going to be talking about that, and I will have some particular privacy tips for you uh, in that show. All right, everybody, that's it. Take care. Please, please, please get your vaccinations and boosters if you haven't already. Help other people to get theirs as well. And frankly, for the next couple of weeks, you know, maybe stay home a little more than you would. Avoid public places more than normal. Wear good masks when you go out. Turns out those cloth masks aren't terribly useful. So maybe get yourself some, at least those three-ply surgical masks, and maybe even invest in some of those N95 or KN95 masks. We'll just have to hunker down and get through this Omicron surge. All right, everybody. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to 2022. Let's hope for a better year. Take care out there. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>